0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about radical moderates and the political spectrum in America. Conventional wisdom would have us believe what we see on television, and what happens during election cycles, represents the whole political spectrum in the United States of America. What a joke. America wastes an amazing amount of time arguing about liberal versus conservative, as if those represent a meaningful range. Far from being the entire political spectrum, it's not even a full slice of a pie chart that must be understood, if we intend to advance, as a society. When I was younger, the idea was floated to me that our political parties, the main ones, Republicans and Democrats, represent a big tent of ideas. That we have a big tent political system. Well, you know what? I don't buy it. We are expected to pick what we are served when you visit a political party. If you went to a fundraising dinner, you might get one choice, two choices at the most, but you're going to eat what's put in front of you. This is not a buffet-style menu. No. You don't have the option to choose a cautious, dare I say conservative approach to managing budgets and setting fiscal priorities, unless you think the current ideas about prayer and school amendments make sense too. In America today, it's not very easy to be a fiscal conservative without also being asked to be a social conservative as well. For the record, at least as far as prayer and school amendments goes, those amendments establish a constitutional right not to pray it's a pretext for reestablishing formal homeroom prayer. In fact, the most recent ideas put forward by Glenn Istook, a Republican from Oklahoma, had Article 1 being all about teacher-led prayer in school and Article 2 being about students having a formal right to opt out, a right not to pray. I, for one, and I sometimes feel like I'm in the Christian minority here rather than any sort of moral majority, I, for one, do not want my Constitution specifying a right not to pray. So what I'm doing is I'm going to put online a blog post with an image, and the image is going to be a circle representing a pie chart of the political spectrum. I'm going to spend a lot of today talking about that chart and kind of where things line up and fit in on it. But along the way, I'm also going to stop and make some comments. There'll be two images at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. One of those images will be An overlay of the political spectrum itself, and the other will be an overlay of ideology, or what I'm calling a a truth against the original image. Again, both of them being a pie chart. But first, let me begin with a, a couple of observations about some of the lies we tell ourselves in our society. We have this notion that we have two political parties, and one of them is liberal and one of them is conservative. You know what? George Bush might be the most liberal president that we've had in my lifetime. If you look back at the size of government before he took office versus the size of government after he took office, if you look at you know, deficit spending before he took office versus deficit spending after he took office, he fits the classic criterion of what we might con- you know, typically call a liberal big spender. Yes, he walked like a hawk and he talked like a hawk, And perhaps from a military perspective, being a bit of a reactionary, perhaps he was conservative in that sense. But beyond any question of a doubt, this was not what I would consider to be a prototypical conservative. So this notion that Republicans are always conservative and Democrats are always liberal has to come face to face with the reality that from the first Bush presidency through the Clinton presidency to the most recent Bush presidency to the current Obama presidency, Our military policy really hasn't changed all that much. So, there's the other idea I'd like to sort of poke a pin at, that Barack Obama is the most liberal president that we've ever had. Well, I would say that from a military perspective, that point of view is absolutely and patently false. It is almost impossible, right now, to distinguish between the first two years of Obama's presidency and the last two years of George W. Bush's presidency from the perspective of military policy. We are still fighting a war on two fronts. We are still fighting a war against, quote, terror, unquote. And we are still using military surges to get those things done. I realize there are certain things from a social issues perspective that Obama is trying to accomplish, and those things tend to rub social conservatives the wrong way. I still question whether that makes him the most liberal president in the history of the United States of America, which is the claim made by the Tea Party movement. Now, let me take a quick moment just to kind of talk about the sham and the joke that is the Tea Baggers. Ostensibly, this is a group of people who are claiming to be taxed enough already and have formed a splinter movement, not an alternative political party but a splinter movement to protest the taxes that they're being asked to pay. The irony is that you can make a good point that Barack Obama has not yet instituted the tax policy changes that he promised as a candidate. However, once he does do what he said he would do as a candidate, most of the people standing outside in these Tea Party protests today are protesting against the president who's promised to give them a tax cut. Let me say that again so we can note the irony. These people are standing up to protest their taxes and to condemn a president who has actually promised to give them a tax cut. Of course, it's not their own tax rate that they're upset about. They're upset about the possibility that they one day may be in a higher tax bracket, and the higher tax bracket that they move into may be paying more taxes in the future than it does right now, despite the fact they're not in the bracket right now that they're protesting against. I wish I could say that this was the... Biggest example of Tea Party craziness, but it's not true. This is a group of individuals who would like to speak to the American people, create a groundswell of popular support in uprising, by and large in protest against the Barack Obama presidency. How do you reach out to people when you can't even speak a common language? Here's what I mean. Have you seen the picture from these Tea Party protests with someone carrying an I'm a teabagger for Jesus sign? I'm a teabagger for Jesus. Does anyone think a person this clueless is pointing us in the right direction? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not judging. The Bible doesn't say anything against teabagging, short of putting such behavior inside a monogamous relationship. But I go a step further than scriptures. Here's what I mean. Call your shot. That's all I'm saying. As with billiards, it's really bad form if you don't call your shot first. Now, I don't care whether your strategy falls along the lines of split the uprights, or if you're moving an entirely different direction and thinking more of taking a lather, rinse, repeat kind of an approach, it doesn't matter. It's a good idea to call your shot. Now, here's my problem. The average person outside at one of these tea party protests today probably doesn't have any idea what I'm talking about. And that's exactly the issue. How do you speak to the younger generation? How do you speak to a broader cross-section of the American people? How do you begin to represent the big tent of ideas when you can't even communicate and when the things that you try to say come off as hopelessly inept? Things like, I'm a teabagger for Jesus. Let's cut to the bottom line here. The people who are part of the Tea Party protest movement are out there because they're opposed to barack obama it can't really be about taxes because if it was about taxes these individuals would have to come face to face with the notion that they're more likely to get the tax break that they're looking for from obama than they would have from mccain more likely to get the tax break they were looking for in the bracket where their current earnings put them from obama than they would from palin so what does it all mean at the end of the day This is a group of people that does not like the election result that put Barack Obama into the presidency. It reminds me a little bit of people who didn't like the election result that put Bill Clinton into the presidency, but I'm going to save my thoughts on that situation for a different day. Here's the reason that I think that the entire thing is an absolute sham. What is going to happen in the next election cycle? Really stop and ask yourself the question, what is going to happen? the next time the United States gets together in 2012 to elect the next president of the United States. Are all these people who are part of these Tea Party protests going to come together, coalesce a wider grassroots initiative, bring together some other third party and alternative political points of view, and offer their own candidate for president? Seems extremely unlikely, and here's why. If the number one motivation is opposition to Barack Obama... And the number one problem is the possibility that Obama will become elected for a second term. These people are going to go back to the Republican Party, including those who aren't Republicans today. They may go over to the Republican Party so they can place a vote for a candidate that they believe actually has a chance of becoming president instead. I do not for one moment believe that your average Tea Party protester has the courage to vote for a third party candidate in hopes that it will level the playing field in three directions in a way not unlike the influence that Ross Perot had on the election in 1992 or John Anderson had on the election in 1980. I just don't think these people have enough faith to do that. On the website at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com, you can see the two circular images that I've described, and I want to try to paint a picture of those for people who, for whatever reason, can't make it to the website to, to get, grab the visual image. Imagine, if you will, a circle with the very top. Call it twelve o'clock. If you consider the circle as a as a clock, is anarchy. It's a place where between right and left, between liberal and conservative, at the very top of that circle, we have the most affirmative, active statement of political persuasion: anarchy. If we go down the right side of the dial, kind of clockwise, the next thing you get, say between 5 after the hour and 10 or 12 minutes after the hour, you get the radical right. These people fall more closely to a conservative bent. However, they're radicalized. They're somewhere between anarchy and what we might call traditional conservatism. That 15 minutes after the hour, all the way down to maybe 20 minutes after the hour, we would have our right wing, traditional conservatism. And at the bottom, of the circle, again from say 20 minutes after the hour to 40 minutes after the hour, we have what we call political pragmatism. I'm going to spend some time in a minute on what political pragmatism really is. It doesn't reflect what we would call centrists today, and I don't believe it reflects what I would call moderates either. As you go up the left-hand side of the clock, you get you know a comparable liberalism. On the left-hand side, mirroring what's on the right-hand side for conservatism, going all the way up to maybe, again, 12 minutes before the hour, where you hit the other balancing side of the scale, the radical left. So on either side of anarchy is the radical right and the radical left, down closer to ground level from there, what we call liberalism and what we call conservatism, and at the bottom of the circle is political pragmatism. Now, If I mention that political pragmatists don't, in my mind, necessarily qualify as either centrists or moderates, where are those folk? Those folks are actually in the middle, on the face of this clock. I have centrists as being really the bulk of the donut, if you now look at it from that perspective. And the very center, the donut hole, not a very big chunk of this diagram either, is what I'm calling true moderates. And I'm going to speak of some of those true moderates as being radical moderates all right there in the center. Now the difference between political pragmatism and what I'm calling the true moderates is indifference. There's a certain indifference to truth that has to be in place to be an effective pragmatist. What's separating the true moderates in the very center of this diagram from anarchists is apathy to get anarchy. You have to have a certain amount of apathy a certain amount of lost hope that any other idea on the market is going to get you what you want. So once you go beyond being a straight pragmatist, past the indifference of being a true moderate or even a radical moderate, and you go beyond that and get to the point where you know your perspective becomes much more jaded, you become a lot more apathetic, you've got a shot at becoming what I would describe as perhaps a genuine anarchist. That's a little bit of a difference between somebody who goes from being on the left, to being on the radical left, to being an outright anarchist, or from somebody who's on the right, to being part of the radical right, to being an outright anarchist. The bulk of the people in America today appear, in my mind anyway, to be these sort of apathetic or indifferent centrists. You can see this from the fact that most of them are not energized by radical new ideas, Most of them do not want huge shifts in the way our government functions. Most of them are quite comfortable with a balance in the Supreme Court in America, where there's a mixture of liberal judges and conservative judges. So, centrists tend to be something of an anchor. Okay, who are the political pragmatists? Well, again, when I'm mentioning that you basically have this line where everything 20 minutes before the hour is something more liberal, more radical left, and everything for the first 20 minutes after the hour is more conservative or more radical right, these political pragmatists, despite the fact that they are in the center, they're underneath this chart, essentially, and they have their own range of liberal and conservative to them. Where do I put Barack Obama? Where do I put George W. Bush? Well, just to use those two men as an example, the two most recent presidents of the United States, one of them purports to be a conservative, George W. Bush, and I wouldn't put him very close to the line between political pragmatism and conservatism. I put him inside the political pragmatism area, and I put him pretty close to the middle of it. And again, I have to measure his hawkish posturing, which may not actually be who he really is, and may not be the legacy that he leaves us, against his big government policies and his big government approach. So where is Barack Obama? I have friends who, when shown this diagram, would point somewhere near the the point where the radical left meets anarchy. I don't understand that. I don't see how in their minds they look at what he has done so far and what he said as a candidate he would do, and they interpret that as somebody who is beyond the pale of any president or any candidate for the presidency we've ever had no barack obama is a classic pragmatist he is one of the most pragmatic politicians we've had in recent years and he may be on the left edge of this political pragmatism area you know 38 minutes after the hour but he is still well in this area of political pragmatism so what's the difference Well, I would say for one thing, there's a difference in that, you know, when you're talking about people who are truly liberal, truly conservative, in a grander, more worldwide perspective, you're talking about people who aren't that interested in preserving our way of government. Now, I know, again, there's a lot of people who viewed George Bush as the end of America as we know it, and people who view Barack Obama as the end of America as we know it. But I didn't see a lot of ideas coming out of either one of those men suggesting that they were ready to throw away the U.S. Constitution and start over from scratch. They might have had some things they were going to nibble at. They might have had some things they were going to completely abrogate. But I didn't see a lot of them saying, this is an idiotic form of government. I am now your new king. And we can laugh at that. But in some ways, Richard Nixon behaved in in a right-wing manner as if he felt that none of the rules of our way of government applied to him. And without any doubt in my mind, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was on the liberal side of the spectrum, the closest we've gotten to somebody who, while being president of the United States of America, wasn't all that close to being a pragmatist, was really close to undoing enough constitutional law and enough precedent to put us in the place where we were no longer truly the democratic republic we were out to be, then we were something far more liberal than we began to be. So that's kind of where the political pragmatists fit in. And if you're uncomfortable with the idea that I'm saying that your current political enemy doesn't, doesn't look as ugly on this chart as you think he should, hey, I apologize for that. But I'd ask you to really challenge your perception and to come away with examples that would make it clear that what Barack Obama is doing or what George Bush before him did wasn't just taking the government that we have and leveraging its power – in the direction of his personal interests but in fact changing our government forever there's a lot of people who are deeply suspicious and deeply concerned that barack obama's use of executive orders is going to change the game forever i don't buy it barack obama isn't coming up with a brand new kind of executive order he's simply using the executive orders that george bush before him used he was using the executive orders that bill clinton before him used perhaps the biggest change we've seen in the way the government functions um, goes back to Ronald Reagan. Okay, so in my mind, the political spectrum is clearly not as simple as right versus left. And the number one thing I was trying to communicate by putting these diagrams out there online is to say, listen, we're talking about key figures in the way the United States is governed. We're talking about this little slice of the pie. I mean, it's bigger than you would cut for yourself after Thanksgiving, but it's still a pretty tiny slice of the pie when you consider all the things that we're not really talking about. You know, We're not talking about the radical left. We're not talking about all-out anarchy. For all the hyperbole you hear on talk shows, that's really not what this is about. So where do I struggle? I struggle here because we don't seem to have a very accurate, a very honest, a very truthful understanding of the way American politics work. And I'm going to lay a lot of that on the foot of relativism. Now, I'm not really talking about moral relativism in this context. I'm talking about political relativism. But either way, relativism with its problems crosses these ideologies in more than just one manner. Like the political spectrum, this is not as simple as truth with a capital T versus truths with a little t. The strains of relativism here vary from absolutism to forms of objectivism. So the next overlay, the second part of the diagram, the other circle, if you will, gives us a sense of kind of how I, how I view this thing. So if you look at that other chart, same circle, and you can kind of see the parallels. Where I was referring to anarchy in the first one, I'm now talking about nullification. So this is the idea that it really can't be fixed, it really can't be tweaked, it has to be done away with. Nullification is the anarchist perspective. One of the things that is common between the radical left and the radical right is egoism. It's a notion that I have the right answer and that my cult of personality is more important than any sort of political ideology. You've gone beyond the idea of ideological principles and gone into one person's point of view. What liberalism and conservatism have in common and what keeps them on the edge of the diagram is absolutism. I'll try to do a better job of defining that as we go. The bottom piece is relativism. So what are our political pragmatists known for? Being relative. Now, we call that lots of things. We call that wishy-washy. We call that flip-flop. We call that spin. We call it whatever you want to call it. It comes down to the notion that I've got an ends-versus-the-means approach and that my relativism is guiding me to make the kind of deals I need to make to get what I really want. So I'm capable in this case, if I'm a political pragmatist, of doing things that my ideology would seemingly rebel against. But I'm doing it because there's a practical ends to the means. There's a relativism at play. A slightly different form of relativism is involved with your centrists, because with the right combination of indifference and apathy, you can be led quickly to believe that almost anything is true. It is shocking how many things come out, especially during political campaign time, that are obviously false, or that frankly just need to be challenged. And for whatever reason, there's a large number of central thinking, centrist-type Americans who don't challenge anything, who don't want anything to be challenged. The distinction I would make between all of these sort of ideologies and the true moderates, the very center of the diagram, is objectivism. So... Let's kind of walk through a few kind of statements of of fact or statements of my perspective about this. Anarchists are driven by nullification, which is a desire to invalidate. Their perspective on truth is there is no truth. Radicals self-determine truth, even if they draw upon law to do so or scripture to do so. Even if they come from a very you know deeply rooted liberal or conservative perspective, at the end of the day. There's a lot of self-determination, a lot of ego, in how they manage truth. Centrists and pragmatists engage in relativism, and the methods are very widely. You hear quotes like, well, my truth may not be your truth, or, hey, this is true because it works, or even just a flat-out statement of doubt, what is truth? Conservatives and liberals believe that they are objectivists, and all others are relativists. Truth is, many of them share the relativism of the pragmatists, but at their core, there's an absolutism, an unbending devotion to a truth. It tends to be the same truth that you see in the egoists of either the radical right in the case of conservatives or the radical left in the case of liberals, but uh, it's rarely ever objective. It's very hard, especially today in America, to get people to wear the other person's shoes, to say, hey. I know you've got a commitment to a truth. I know you've got an ideology that you're not going to bend from. But the only way you're really going to make a difference, the only way you're going to bridge the gap, the only way you're going to bring people who disagree with you into your fold, the only way you're going to persuade is if you can at least try on their idea. Honestly, try it on. Take the risk of being persuaded by somebody else's point of view. You do not tend to see absolutists make that move. You tend to see them stay right on their side of the dial and not make any maneuver toward the center of this chart at all. So, true moderates are objectivists, weighing all sources, law, scripture, etc., and holding truth to standards that resist trends, that embrace wisdom. I'm always a little uncomfortable with the term common sense. Despite the fact that Common Sense is the name of one of my favorite political podcasts, the Dan Carlin Show, Common Sense, Um, I tend to be a little bit wary of Common Sense, because frankly, I'm really interested in a sense that's way more than just common. Okay, a couple more things I want to do with these charts before I move on for the week. We're going to cover this topic two weeks in a row. But first, I want us to look at these charts again and kind of mentally draw a, a vertical slice right down the middle. So, this big rectangle is going to include anarchy, apathy, true moderates, indifference, and most of political pragmatism. It won't get all of the political pragmatism, but it'll get most of it. This slice, which cuts vertically, kind of a vertical rectangle, the focus here is on action. Anarchy is the ultimate aggressive act of egoism, the will of the individual denying any collective rules. On the other end, down at the bottom, pragmatism is action in the realm of compromise and accommodation. It's not that there's action up at the top, and at the bottom nothing's happening. It's that this group down there below rejects both the stalemate uh, or the particularism, the notion that there's only one right way of doing things, and they try to work to find a way to get a completely bipartisan system of government moving through deal-making. Now, in the middle, where the true moderates are, You've got a centrist indifference that helps shield them from the political games of the pragmatists. And up at the top, this apathy of the centrist is ultimately stronger than anarchy. So to be a true moderate, you're not going to go all the way through the course of becoming so apathetic and jaded that you're ready to just chuck it all. Um, there's, there's enough meat in that apathy to hold you in the center of the diagram. Now let's draw a horizontal slice instead. Covering liberalism, the centrist, true moderate, centrist on the other side of the spectrum, and conservatism. Because it's important to note that you know, this, this idea that centrist is one concept, that you have this one American who holds these two political ideologies equal in their brain at the same time and, and embrace both of them, it doesn't really work that way. But what you have is people who fall short of being what we might call truly right wing or truly left wing. This horizontal slice of the, of the spectrum is less a, a focus on action and more a focus on ideas. Both the liberal and the conservative approaches reject any compromise of standards. It's one of the things that makes them very different from the political pragmatists, and what makes the political pragmatists so distasteful to them? It's what makes somebody who's really a, a right-wing conservative perceive somebody like Barack Obama as being so far to the left that they can't even find them on the chart. It's not that Barack Obama is beyond left. It's that when they're looking across the aisle, they're not finding him there. Because he isn't, ideologically, from an ideas perspective, diametrically opposed to them. He's down in the middle there somewhere, deal-making. So both the conservative and the liberal approaches reject any compromise of standards. Moderates, on the other hand, separate from the liberals. And they separate from the liberals because they give weight to tradition, scripture, law, rules. Moderates separate from the conservatives by giving equal time to reason, cultural observations, scientific discovery, what's really happening now. So it's that notion of being able to see both, kind of, what have we always done? What did our forefathers say? Um, What does our religion say? What is our culture holding us to? with at the same time being very open to the idea that this isn't carved in stone. We're going to encounter problems we've never experienced before, and we're going to have to use our brains to get us through that. This is not to imply that conservatives do not use their brains, and this is not to imply that liberals are incapable of having a strong foundational faith. It's simply to say that if you use those simplistic concepts, you pretty much have on one side of the spectrum, the right side, a real fidelity to things like scripture and law. And on the liberal side of the spectrum, from the left, you have much more interest in having a fidelity toward things like reason and scientific discovery. Okay, a couple last observations on these charts. First, if we look at the y-axis, so going kind of from top to bottom, now looking at the entire chart, because this isn't just uh, solely a focus on ideas or solely a focus on action, it's that top-to-bottom view The emphasis here is on change. At the very top, radicals and anarchists want changes now. They want something different, they want it immediately. And at the bottom of this, where you find your political pragmatists and your centrist indifference, you get this emphasis on stability. So the higher up the y-axis you go, the more your emphasis is on change. The x-axis is also a scale where if you move from left to right, The emphasis comes from modernity on the left, modern science and culture, to an emphasis on tradition on the right, things like scripture, things like natural law. Now the inner circle itself is not stagnant. It's not a pool of of water that lacks any sort of tide, that doesn't have any sort of flow. The true moderates actually have a spectrum that reflects the polarity of the outer circle. So if you look at that inner circle and say, well, does that mean that there's some kind of of an anarchist tendency in there? Is there a a political pragmatism in play? In this uh, political pragmatism at the bottom of our circle, we actually have people we call liberals and we call them conservatives. I think that's secondary to who they are. Surely they'll have right and left leanings, but at the end of the day, most of the people in the U.S. Senate, most of the people in the U.S. House of Representatives are political pragmatists. That's how they got there. But inside this inner circle, where the true moderates are, you also have that same kind of flow. There are people that are there that we might describe as being more liberal than conservative, others that we might describe as being more conservative than liberal. See, this has a spectrum that reflects the polarity of the outer circle as well. Liberal and conservative leanings, I think, should be obvious, and we shouldn't take them for granted. Um, The gap here, if you go from the extreme left to the extreme right of this hole in the donut, is actually almost as big as the gap in the outer circle bridged by political pragmatism. And when you think about it, when you're watching television news talk shows and debate programs, not that I'm recommending you do, but if you did watch those shows, you might get the sense that on one extreme, you've got an intractable difference to the other extreme, when you're really only talking about 20 minutes of clock time from one of those quote-unquote extremes to the other So let's talk about what's inside that inner circle then and how we get to this idea of moderates or true moderates or non-centrist moderates to what I'm calling radical moderates. So let's kind of lay the land. On the lower turn of that inner circle, pragmatism shows up in ways like globalization, democratization, the idea of having a bigger world we need to deal with. On the upper turn, the self-interest of egoisms, the, the sort of radical notions, is represented there in things like protectionism and isolationism. You know, so you have a pretty big gamut here from people who, during a time of international conflict, might be inclined to send in the troops because their focus is on what's best for the globe, what's best for for the various democracies around the world. Whereas you might also might have true moderates who would say, no, now is the time for us to be a little more isolationist in our approach. We have to make sure we understand who it is we're fighting for before we send any troops in and start fighting and we have to understand what the fighting is going to give us how we're ultimately going to win the difference is that to be a true moderate in my mind means that not only are you not on this outer circle at all not only are you not stuck in the mushy middle where you don't really care one way or the other about what what's going on in your country the difference is that you're not stuck you're not pigeonholed on the left side of the center part of the outer circle where the 9 o'clock on the clock dial would be because you're a true moderate, but you're liberal about it. The difference between a radical moderate and others is that radical moderates are going to move their position when it makes sense for the, com- for the country. We don't always make right-hand turns when we're driving down the road. We don't always make left-hand turns when we're driving down the road. It doesn't make sense to always go straight and to n- never do anything except go straight. To run a country, you've got to have the willpower to function the way you do behind the wheel of an automobile. You've got to know when to turn. You've got to be willing to make subtle turns. And you've got to be able to get back to where you're supposed to go after you've changed direction, whether on a temporary basis or a midterm basis, or even on a fairly long-term basis. You've got to have a commitment not to where you sit on this spectrum, but a commitment ...to what this spectrum represents to the country as a whole. So, there's a political spectrum out there. I realize it's far simpler, perhaps far more comfortable for your average American... ...to believe that the whole thing is just a matter of right versus left. But right versus left doesn't help us as an idea. Right versus left leads Republicans to not understand why the whole country isn't pro-life. Right versus left leads Democrats to not understand why the whole country isn't pro-choice... It's more complicated than that, and it's not wishy-washy, it's not inconsistent, and it's not a whole bunch of spin when you can hold two competing ideas in your head at the same time and make a wise judgment about where one of those ideas has power and strength and where it fails, and where the other idea has power and strength and where it fails, and to craft something that is neither right nor left, not sheer lazy pragmatism but also not absolute unmitigated anarchy and above all takes what i want and makes it secondary to what is truly good for the united states of america i'm going to ask you to consider this political spectrum for a week and um, next week i'm going to share with you a piece of fiction that represents this political spectrum and what could best be described as a folktale in the meantime. You know, I am not a person who owns an iPhone. I don't have an iPod Touch. I'm not a Mac user. But if I was, there's a program that I would rely on quite heavily to help me navigate my way through the various apps that are available, the kind of tools that make these um, gadgets so handy and so interesting. I'm recommending a podcast called Appy Times, A-P-P-Y-T-I-M-E-S. Good evening, everybody. If you have an iPod Touch or an iPhone, and if you love your applications but are feeding the pinch of the current economic climate, then this is the podcast for you. Each week I'll review a free or cheap application and spend a few minutes gassing on about why I like it or not. Buying apps over the air can be both addictive and expensive, so why not spend a few minutes a week listening to Appy Times, and I'll try to separate the week from the chaff. Just go to appytimes.podbean.com or search the iTunes store for Appy Times. That's A-P-P-Y-T-I-M-E-S. So come and share the Appy Times with me. Thank you. Today's different drummer is Jello Biafra, the lead singer of Dead Kennedys, but he's actually much, much more. In fact, his reputation in punk music circles might lead me to put him under the category of music, but I'm actually introducing him as a different drummer to put him into the category of political theory. Jello Biafra has actually spent most of the last 10, 15 years recording numerous talks on censorship. He perhaps doesn't have the spoken word reputation that Henry Rollins does, another champion of the punk movement and the hardcore rock music movement who has gone on to be a very interesting and very capable public speaker. But I like what Jello Biafra has done by focusing on issues of censorship and of privacy and of the political spectrum in America today. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that at some point I was going to revisit The Offspring. And what I meant by that is The album that I like best from the band is Ixnay on the Ombre. And the first thing you hear when you put on that album is the voice of Jello Biafra saying, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the disclaimer. Essentially, his disclaimer is a full-on protest against the parental discretion, parental advisory process. Here's his words. This will cleanse any sense of innuendo or sarcasm from the lyrics that might actually make you think. There you go. So, his recommendation before listening to this album by The Offspring is protect your family. This album contains explicit depictions of things which are real. (laughs) These real things are commonly called life. So if it sounds sarcastic, don't take it seriously. Jello Biafra has delivered much more direct and powerful words than that on his spoken word albums. The first one that I heard was the first one he released, No More Cocoons. It was a combination of straight-up political diatribe, with some humor. His entire names for bands section was you know, pretty funny in terms of how the leader of Alternative Tentacles Records responds to people asking him for help or advice on what they should name their rock and roll band, what's the re- the right kind of subversive band name for somebody who's looking for rock and roll street credibility. In some ways, it's a more serious and straight-up approach to what Monty Python did In their names for bands routine, that almost put uh, for a while they put almost every band in a white wine sauce. That's not quite as silly as that. The central piece of that particular album for me, though, is called "Letter to Tipper Gore." Tipper Gore wrote a letter to Jello Biafra, and as he put it, I wrote her back. His second album actually details what he considered to be the fallout of the entire Parents Music Resource Center controversy, that brings the names of Jello Biafra. Frank Zappa, John Denver, and others face-to-face with high-power Washington wives, like Tipper Gore. Um, It talks about the arrest and the trial over the Dead Kennedys album, *Franken Christ, and the fallout of all of that. At the end of the day, all of that controversy meant that the Dead Kennedys, somewhere around 1986 or 1987, ceased to exist as a functioning punk rock band. And Jello Biafra carried on with probably as many spoken word releases as he's had rock and roll albums, and his rock and roll albums since then have always been collaborations with other groups, groups like Ministry or the Melvins, for example. Jello Biafra works excellently as a different drummer for this particular episode because of where he stands in the political spectrum. And I'm hoping I can use this as an actual object lesson in how we ought to behave as a democracy. Do I believe everything Jella Biafra says? No. He comes with a political perspective. He is every bit as partisan as anybody you'll see on any of the network news talk shows or any of the debate crossfire type programs that are out there. In fact, I think that probably I'm almost on the opposite corner of the political spectrum to him because he is somewhere between that line between being uh, liberal and being part of the radical left. And I'm somewhere in that... You know, true moderate corner, but the right hand lower corner of the true moderate part of the spectrum. The difference is that we ought to be listening to one another. Jello Biafra has opinions about politics. They may not always be right, but they're certainly always well informed. and above all, they're worth a listen. I'll give you the disclaimer that he gave to the offspring at the beginning of their album, though. If it sounds sarcastic, don't take it seriously. If it sounds dangerous, don't try it at home or at all. And if if it offends you, he says just don't listen to it. I say, if it offends you, have enough patriotic belief in the United States of America that you are willing to listen to ideas that you don't agree with, that you do not believe that everyone who has things wrong must be silenced, that you don't believe that if you can't get your way, no one else should. In other words... Try to be something bigger than a member of the tea bag party. Try to be something genuinely different. If you want to leave the Republican Party with the Democratic Party because you're unhappy with the current president of the United States, more power to you. But don't pretend to be not a Republican for three years and go into that booth and vote for whichever Republicans running against Barack Obama. Do not pretend that you're not really a Democrat for three years because you're opposed to Obama's policies, and then go running back to the Democratic Party so you can vote in a primary two and a half years from now. Have more integrity than that. So I'm comparing Jello Biafra, the wild, sometimes offensive lead singer of the punk rock band Dead Kennedys, as an example of somebody who has the integrity and the willpower to say what he thinks, to stick with it, and to follow through on his principles. If you're uncomfortable with some of the things that I've said in this podcast, if you don't think that Jello Biafra is a good role model, well, hey, why don't you start by trying to walk his walk? Why don't you start by trying to at least live up to his standards? Because you know what? I agree with anyone who says, we can do a little better than that. I'm just disappointed that for the most part, Most people who talk politics today, especially on television, don't even try. Thank you for listening to Inappropriate Conversations. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, the website is inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. That's also where you can find images of the diagrams that I've been discussing today, and that I'll also be referencing next week. I also have an email address. You can reach me at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.